Good morning. How's everybody doing? Today we hit up against one of the most controversial passages in all of the New Testament. How many of you knew that already? Somebody did. Some of you did. It really is one of the most controversial passages in the whole New Testament. And it's not, you know, when you think of controversial passages, you think maybe, I don't know, Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. Maybe you don't think of Romans chapter 7. But really, it's highly controversial because it touches deeply on the nature of the Christian life and experience, and a lot of people fight about it. A lot of commentators fight about it. I have a stack of commentaries this big, and I don't know that there's agreement between any of them. People fight about this. <clears throat> they don't know what to make about, uh, uh, of this passage, and uh, the, the real question is, who is the I that Paul is talking about when he says, he uses the word I like 40 times in this passage. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about himself now? Is he talking about himself a long time ago before he became a Christian? Is he projecting some kind of hypothetical other person out there, this hypothetical Christian or pre-Christian? Or is he pretending that he's Adam? Or is he pretending that he's, like, these are all the kinds of positions that people take on this passage. Who's he talking about? And so I want to start this morning by reading the whole passage, and then we're going to go through it in separate sections. Um, and I want you to ask the question, as we read it the first time, and as we go through a second time, who talks this way? Who says things like this? Does it resonate with you? Does it resonate with your own experience? And I want you to think, as he's, as he's writing this, whose objections, who's he arguing with? Who's he fighting with? What objections are, are, is he uh, really anticipating here? What's he fighting? And remember the context. Remember last week's sermon? Remember the last several weeks? He's been arguing this. Left to ourselves, we are unrighteous. We're condemned by our inability to live up to God's law. But by faith in Christ, we receive a new righteousness apart from God's law. Separate. One that's not even our own righteousness. We receive it by faith. So we were unrighteous. Now we're righteous. We were dead. Now we are alive. We were in Adam. Now we're in Christ. We were under the reign of sin. Now we're under the reign of grace. We were under the law. We were married in an old covenant. We died. There's a new covenant. We're under grace, under law, under grace. And so that leaves a question, a tension. What about the law, really? Everybody should step back and say, okay, man, you've so thoroughly trashed the law. Is the law good for anything? Is the law sin? Is it poison? Is the law the problem? If we could just get rid of the law, does that solve everything? Is that what you're actually saying here? Throw it out? And here's what I think is even underneath that question. So listen and check me on this. Okay? Are you suggesting that the Christian life has no tension in it at all? That it's a life of constant victory? That we can be perfected in this life and that there's no real failure once you get it? And if we have any failures, it's because of God's law? 
So get rid of it. I think that's the tension he's dealing with. Okay, so listen. Check me. We're going to read the entire passage, and it's a lot. Okay? What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we need your help. We need you to guide us and lead us. We need the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this morning for uh, the Sulcers as they continue to await uh, the safe arrival of Mahdi at home, and we thank you that Torin was able to come home. We thank you um, that the Abrams babies continuing to grow strong. We thank you for all of uh, the babies who are growing strong in their mother's wombs. We pray that you would bring them safely to term and protect them. Father, be with us now. Help us. Give us wisdom. Give me wisdom. Give me grace. Give me power as I preach. Okay, back to the top. Tension. You feel that tension? You see why it's confusing to people? It's a lot, right? We'll take the first set here, verses 7 to 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, 
and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay, here's what he's saying. The law has more than one purpose. The law has multiple effects on us. And the first one is that it names sin. It calls sin what it is. It explains it. It names it. Does that make the law bad? No, it just means that we are bad. We're the problem. We're the sinners. The law identifies what's wrong about our behavior. It identifies it. It puts a name to it. And the second thing that he says is that it awakens our sin because we are sinful. So because we're sinful, the law has the effect of increasing our sin. That's not because the law is bad. It's because we are bad. So he uses the example of coveting. Desiring what you don't have. Desiring what's not yours. Question, did anybody here have to be taught to covet? Did you have to be taught to desire what you don't have? Nobody, right? Your kids, they have to be taught to desire what they don't have. No, of course not, right? This is natural. Now, in order to understand it, your kids need to be taught what it is and that it's wrong to covet, right? Nobody needs to be taught to covet, but they need to be taught that it's bad, and that means it needs to have a name so it can be forbidden. It needs to be explained. It needs to be shown. It needs to be prohibited that thou shalt not covet. But that creates its own problem, doesn't it? So question for you parents. Your kids are off playing nicely with each other or by themselves in the same room. Johnny's got blocks and Susie's got a teddy bear. And they're both happy. But if you go to Johnny and you say, now Johnny, don't take Susie's teddy bear. Susie, don't take Johnny's blocks. What happens? Suddenly, you've, it didn't occur to Johnny that he might want Susie's teddy bear. But now the idea is there. There's a prohibition. Huh, I kind of do want that teddy bear. And now he's thinking about it. And Susie's thinking, I kind of do want to play with those blocks. I'm thinking about it. The law, the prohibition, meets with the sinner, with the sinful heart. So wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You tell me I can't have that? I didn't even know I wanted it until you said that, but now I kind of want that. Now, is that true of your experience? It's true with kids, right? Just, you're making cookies, you set the cookies out on the table, kids don't know. Call all the kids over, say, now kids, I don't want you to touch these cookies, I don't want you to think about the cookies, and I don't even want you to even ask for the cookies. Now go back and play. Now, what, what did you just do? <laughs> you created a problem right? And it's pretty mean of you. It's pretty torturous. But now these kids who didn't know that they, they didn't even know that there were cookies to be wanted and they didn't know they wanted those cookies. Now those kids can't stop thinking about the cookies. How are they going to, what are they going to do? Are they going to want to touch those cookies? They're going to want to come. They're going to want to swipe one. They're going to try to get creative about asking you without asking you for the cookies since you said not to ask. That's just what happens. You've created a law. Is the law good? Sure. But what's the law done? It's met up with a sinner. Now, is this your experience? 
This explains the whole existence of this thing we call reverse psychology, right? What is reverse psychology at its essence? It's just an attempt to work with the grain of our sinful, rebellious hearts. It's an attempt to say, I anticipate and I assume rebellion, so I'm just going to manipulate you to rebel in the direction I want you to rebel in. Rebellion's the given. I'm going to work with the grain of your desire to go against whatever I say. You definitely don't want this, right? You create a prohibition in order to get the behavior you want. It's reverse psychology. That's because that's how our hearts work. And when it comes to this sort of thing of creating laws and rules, especially for our own kids, we can get ourselves in trouble as parents. It's easy to get ourselves in trouble as parents, especially if we are very sensitive about certain things, especially if we've been hurt in particular ways, right? So you'll get in trouble with this sort of thing maybe if you've been a victim of abuse because you're afraid. You're highly sensitive to that, and so you're tempted to create rules to protect your kids that inevitably violate their innocence and create a problem where there wasn't going to be a problem. Do you understand how that works? Those rules can be good rules. They can have no sexual content to them whatsoever. But you can create allure, fascination, curiosity about things that just wouldn't have occurred to them to think about before if you're not careful. It can create enticement. We have to be careful. I have to be careful even now about how I talk about these things, right? Because we all know it's dangerous. Ask it of yourself. How many sins in your life did you not even consider until somebody introduced those sins to you? Introduced those ideas to you? And so you're at that kid's house and he showed you that thing. This is why we have to be careful even about talking about these things. It's why Ephesians tells us to have nothing to do with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, to not even talk about the things, not even name the things that are practiced among the pagans. It's why Galatians warns us that when anyone is caught in sin, only those of us who are spiritual should confront that person and work to restore him. Why? Because you're always running the risk of falling into the same sins. Why? Because you're thinking about it, you're sympathizing with the man who fell into that sin, you're understanding the appeal, and if you're not on guard, it can lodge itself in your heart. It can take root. When that happens, is the law itself the problem? Is the law bad? No. It just proves that we're all that bad, each of us. It proves that we're the problem. So Paul says the law names our sin, Incidentally, that's why we want to get rid of the law all over the place. That's why we want to make everything permissible. Because if we don't call it sin, maybe there won't be anything to feel guilty about. But God's law doesn't change. We can, change, we can ignore it. We can try to change it, but it doesn't change. It simply tells us that we need to change. We are the ones that need to change. Okay, so it names our sin. It awakens our sin. And he uses coveting, Right? And I've already talked about kids with coveting, but think about yourself. Think about the world that we live in. Our world is built around coveting, isn't it? It's what advertising is all about. It's what social media is about. 
Envy, coveting, desire, desiring what's not yours. And the more law we get, the more rebellion we get. And lawbreakers think that the problem is the law and refuse to admit that the problem is themselves. They don't want to take responsibility for themselves. We don't want to take responsibility for ourselves. Marriage works this way. We get married and we suddenly find that we're a lot more rebellious than we thought we were. But that's not how we frame it. Oh man, I was doing great until I got married. The woman you gave me, God, the man you gave me, he, like, all of a sudden I'm like this horrible person. No, you just got more responsibility. In a sense, you got more law. And it met up with your sinful, rebellious heart. And you got exposed. So you have, two cho- or you have choices. You can rebel, you can repress, or you can deal with the sin that got exposed. Parenting works the same way. You start to have kids, suddenly you find you're a lot more lazy and rebellious than you thought you were. These kids are a problem. No, they're a mirror. They expose you. Your responsibility increased, law increased, you're exposed. You can rebel, you can repress, or you can deal with what, you, what God has brought to the surface. The law awakens sin, it's aggravating. It's like being told not to yawn. Some of y'all are going to yawn now. Don't, yeah, Gretchen's trying to keep her mouth shut. It's going to happen. It's like being told not to think about pink elephants. Good luck, right? It's like being reminded about the horrible mosquito bites that you forgot about and weren't scrapping. Now, shoot, you reminded me and now I have to itch. I have to scratch that itch, right? Does that make the law bad? Okay, I'm going to keep moving forward. So far, this is just normal life, right? This is normal life experience. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So Paul knows what we think and what we feel when he talks this way. And he says, look, okay, it's sin that's the problem. Sin takes good things and corrupts them and produces death. The law shows you what sin is, and it removes any ability on your part to uh, claim that you're innocent And then it doubles down and rubs your nose in how sinful you really are because as soon as you hear it, creates every kind of sinful desire in you. And that's you, not it. How many times in your life have you done something that you hate? And when you got done, you looked at yourself in the mirror and said, what in the world? Why did I do that? How did that even happen? I did something that I hate. I hate it. I know I hate it. I did it anyway. I hurt myself, I hurt somebody I love. I did evil just for evil's sake. Augustine in his book, The Confessions, talking like fourth century, okay? Like almost 2,000 years ago, writes about this sort of thing. He talks about when he was a kid, he and a bunch of his friends went and stole pears from a neighbor's orchard. And they're all rich kids. They all had their own orchards with their own pears and their pears were better. And they went and they stole more pears than they could even eat. 
It's like, okay, we're rich kids. We have as many pears as we want to eat in our own orchards. We're not hungry. We don't need anything. Our pears are, in fact, better. We just didn't like this guy. So what was the point? And he just, like, goes on this examination of, like, okay, we weren't hungry. We didn't need them. They weren't even good. We got more than we could eat anyway. Why did we do that? Why? And all he comes back to is, we did it for the pleasure of doing something bad. We did, it for e- we did evil for evil's sake. That was it. That, so that's really all it comes down to. We just did evil because we were evil. Do you have things in your life that you look back on like that? You're like, man, why did I do that? God's law is good. We are the problem. We'll either try to change God's word or we will have to change. We'll try to sell it short. We'll try to hide it. We'll try to deny it or we'll be changed by it. Let's keep going. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He talks this way. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Is that the way that you talked before you became a Christian? No. Nobody talks that way. Except somebody who really knows how bad they are. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Okay. Now, there are three basic views. There are lots of sub-views here. The three basic views of who the I is in this passage. And the first is the carnal Christian or the baby Christian. And you've probably seen this sort of thing represented on paper. You know, you've got the drawing, the illustration with the throne, and it's like, well, you know, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I'm still on the throne. Jesus is over here somewhere, and I got to make Jesus. And this is a tool that people use to tell people, well, you may have prayed a prayer, but you really have to make Jesus the Lord of your life or something like that, right? So that's one idea. One idea is, it's, well, it's that kind of person. Uh, you've got to, you're ruled by sin still. And you've got to make Jesus the Lord of your life. It's a baby Christian or a pre-Christian or somebody kind of in the, in the mix. A category of person that I don't think really exists. Okay? There's another view, and it's the non-Christian. It's the pagan, right? So Paul now is a perfect Christian, This is how he used to be before he was a Christian. He's above all of that now, and that's the implication, right? And that's the other view that people have. So really, the only person who struggles with sin is an unbeliever. And they hit up against it, and they hate it, but they just can't deal with it until they have the power that Paul has, and they're free of it, and they can be made perfect. Paul probably was. Paul probably didn't sin at all. In fact, you can probably be that way too if you just kind of like achieve that kind of higher life status. You get maybe a second experience of grace once you get spiritual enough. And there are some more sophisticated takes on both of those two versions, okay? Some more nuanced takes, some more scholarly takes, but I think that's really what it comes down to. And the reason for those two views and the reason they're so prevalent is because dealing honestly with the tension 
of this passage and the tension of the Christian life of living with real sin inside of us and having to deal with it by faith and put it to death is something that very few people have the faith for. But I think the reality, the simple way of reading this passage is to simply say, no, Paul's just talking about himself and he's talking about the ordinary Christian experience. He's just painting a picture of a real Christian, an honest one. To ask yourself if this feels like you. Nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. I want to do what's right. I keep failing. I don't do the good that I want to do, even. Instead, I do the evil that I hate. I've made progress, but I'm not there yet. I see how far I've come and how far I have to go, and I know that left to myself, I'm no good. I can't do it. There's nothing good in me. I've proven that over and over and over again. I know that I still, after all this time, find myself doing the things I hate. Things I know are not just wrong, but evil. And it's unaccountable and it's inexcusable. And when I look at how far I have to go, how far from Jesus I am, how far from perfect I am, it makes me sick to my stomach. Wretched man that I am. Who talks and thinks that way? I think just a, a real honest Christian, that's who. When I hold up God's law to my life, I see myself squirm. I see all the ways I don't measure up. The more I get to know the law, the harder it is to see good in me. Because here's what God's taught me. It's not just the outside of the cup that matters, it's the inside of the cup. It's not just the outward acts, it's the inward disposition of my heart. Yeah. I've been married for, we'll just make it personal, I've been married for 16 years. I've never committed the act of adultery. But guess what Jesus says? Jesus says everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery in his heart. There's nothing good in me. Yeah, I've never murdered anybody myself. Not with a gun, not with a knife, not with my bare hands. Jesus says anyone who is angry with his brother has committed murder. And all I need to do, all I need to do to be guilty of that is get behind the wheel of my car. There's nothing good in me. Yeah, I've seen progress on those fronts. I'm not as lustful or as angry as I was five or 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. But when I look at my soul and compare it to God's law, and when I look at Jesus' example and compare it to what I see, what I want to be as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother, I see a gap that's insurmountable. Can't make that. Can't bridge that gap. Wretched man that I am. I think that is just the honest Christian experience. I think that's just real life. And here's what I think he's saying. This is just normal. This is just normal. So here's what we don't do. What we don't do is look at that in despair. What we don't do is throw out the law and rebel and re-enter some cycle of rebellion and hypocrisy and self-righteousness. That's what I think those other two false, erroneous views of Romans 7 actually teach you to do. They teach you to despair, say there's no hope, so pretend, 
be a hypocrite, clean the outside of the cup and tell yourself the inside is clean and that you can do it. You can achieve a higher kind of life. Resolve the tension that way by being a hypocrite or being self-righteous or give up, quit, and just rebel. And there's no, there's no between. You're either going to clean the outside of the cup and pretend and lie to yourself and everybody else about what's inside of you. If you screw up, it's because you're not even a Christian. You better pray that prayer again because you didn't pray at the right time the first time. You better walk down that aisle for the eighth time. Those are the attempts to resolve the tension. Right there. Paul says this is a different kind of tension. It's escalated beyond what you ever thought. All that, all that law, all that hypocrisy, all that, oh, this is pre-Christian and now we can really have victory upon victory. That's trying to resolve the tension and that's just living under the law. You rebel for a time, you clean up the outside of the cup, you become a hypocrite, convince yourself you're doing great, you become self-righteous, you crack, you fall into rebellion, binge, purge, and that's the whole problem. Because you can't live with the tension of the wretched blessedness of the true Christian life. And it's both and. It's the life of faith. There, you're not righteous. There is not, none righteous, no, not one. You are saints in Christ Jesus. Righteous. You're either in Adam or you're under Jesus. You're dead, you're alive, you're a slave or you're free. You're under the old covenant, you're under the new covenant, you're under law, you're under grace. He's not resolving the tension. He's escalating it. Tension is not trying to become righteous and failing and flailing around and trying to feel bad enough about yourself. It's different than that. It's actually being able to look at yourself and say, yes, I really am that bad. All of it. All the bad is all that's me. I really have that far to go. Yes, nothing good dwells in me. I still do the evil I hate. I still don't do the good I want. Even when I do the good I want, I find that evil's right there in my heart. Wretched me. I am that bad. Thank God for Jesus. I'm that bad. And yet, as bad as I am, every moment of every day, there stands Jesus to forgive me of my sin, to love me, to reconcile me to God, and to lavish me with grace upon grace. So that every day I can walk in forgiveness and newness of life. Every day I can get back up on my feet and fight my sin. Every day I can little by little put my sin to death. Not because I have to obtain perfection in order to be pleasing to God or fake perfection. But because God's already pleased. Because of Jesus, not because of me. I don't have to work for his love. I have it. I'm a new man. I don't have to work to please him. He's already pleased. I don't have to fight my way up to him. He came down to me. I don't have to obey the law. I get to obey the law. I don't have to walk as a slave anymore. I, don't, I get to walk in the freedom of a healthy, whole, strong, loving relationship with my Father in heaven through Jesus, the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm able to forget what lies behind and press on. Yesterday is done. Today is a new day. There are going to be plenty of failures today. And there will be grace for every one of them. I can confess my sins and I can be real about them and I can be honest about them because that is part of the process. 
That's just what it is. I don't have to hide. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to act like they're real. I can just live with them in the open. I can be real about it, and I can put them behind me, and I can move on toward God. Sometimes being real about your sins means figuring out the root causes and working on the roots, right? It's part of the work, too. It's what wisdom and maturity in Christ teach you. Why really am I angry? Why really am I full of lust? Sin is like weeds in our lives, and you have to get at them by the root. And so we start our Christian lives just out in the garden, plucking as much weeds as we can, right? We clean up things a little bit, and then we learn to get to the root of things over time. And we learn to dig deeper. And some of those weeds have roots that go down deep, and they're harder to kill than others. And that's okay. We just learn, man, we really are that bad after all. We really are that bad after all. We learn not to be surprised at the evil of our own hearts. We learn that we're always learning how deep it goes. We learn that our flesh is really is that utterly sinful. And we have to keep day by day putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. So here's the reality. Here's what he's saying. For the Christian, God has so fundamentally changed us that the things we used to do we now hate. We still do them. How many of you look back at your former life with some shame? At things you used to do that you really hate. But has God changed you? Has he changed your heart? Has he done something new? The hatred of that sin is part of the evidence that God is at work in you, that he has been at work in you. The hatred of the sin itself, not just the consequences of it. The Christian who's in the struggle, in the fight, and failing is not the hypocrite. It's the Christian who gives up on the fight. That's the hypocrite. It's the Christian who stops repenting, who stops confessing his sin, who refuses to get back up and to press on, who makes his peace with living under the law and just feeling bad about himself or cleaning the outside of the cup or giving over himself over to straight-up rebellion. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Christians are hypocrites because they sin. The answer to that is that's why I'm a Christian. That's why. Yes, I know I fail to live up to God's standards. That's why I'm a Christian. I'm not a Christian because I'm perfect, but because I'm horrible. Because I need forgiveness. Not because I'm good at obeying God's law, but because I'm bad at obeying God's law. Not because I'm good at following Jesus, but because I'm bad at it. I need grace, I need mercy, I need forgiveness, I need help, I need power to overcome the evil that's in my heart. There is nothing good in me. That's why I'm a Christian. How do you deal with your evil? How do you deal with your failures and your hypocrisy and your own sins? How do you deal with your conscience? You think, are you, you think you're perfect? Like what? No. We need grace. Here's what happens when you become a Christian. How many of your kids could live on a box of mac and cheese and a bag of Skittles every day, or they think they could. What would happen to you now if you, as an adult, tried to live on a box of mac and cheese and a bag of Skittles a day? 
not good things. You'd feel like garbage, wouldn't you? You'd feel like trash. You'd be sick all the time. You'd have no energy. You'd hate your life. Right? What happened? As you became an adult, your appetite changed and you started to mature and you left behind childish things. And now if you go eat a box of mac and cheese and Skittles, you're going to pay for it. You're going to realize that's not really food, actually. It makes me feel like trash and I don't like feeling like trash. Tastes fine going down and then I feel like trash, right? Before you were a Christian, your appetite was box mac and cheese and Skittles. It was going to kill you. Don't take the analogy too literally, okay? It's just an analogy. I know some of you probably still live on box mac and cheese and Skittles. But God changed your desires. He changed your appetite. He gave you desires for what is good, what's healthy, what brings life. And you're still going to have a hankering to go back and grab a bag of Skittles. And you're going to indulge it. And then you're going to feel bad. God changed your desires. You feel bad because you know you're hurting yourself. And it's a dumb analogy because there's nothing wrong. There's no moral issue with a bag of Skittles, okay? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just giving a little picture. Point is, God has changed your desires and your appetites. When you feed your soul good things, you grow. When you feed on filth, you die. The Bible calls this sowing to the flesh or sowing to the spirit. And we'll talk about this more next week. What are you feeding? the old man or the new man. You were unrighteous, now you're righteous. You were God's enemy, now you're his adopted child. You were in Adam, now you're in Christ. You were dead, now you're alive. You were slaves, now you're free. You're under the old covenant, now you're under the new. You were under law, now you're under grace. You were of the flesh, now you're in the spirit. God has made you all of these things and all of these things are true of you in a spiritual sense. And one day it will be true of you completely in every possible way. But today you live in the tension, in the fight, in the in-between. You're in the middle of a process. God sees you as righteous. God sees you as perfect. And God will make you perfect. You will be perfected, righteous. Today, you're a saint who's also still a sinner, who's striving to become what God has promised. And your job is to fight that fight to live up to your calling. How do you do that? You take what God says about you and you believe it. You take what God promises, which is where we're headed in chapter eight, and you believe that. And you tell your soul and you tell your flesh and you tell the world and you tell the devil that God has declared me righteous. God has promised that one day I will be free from sin. So I live under the reign of God's grace. That is certain. It is promised, it is secured by Jesus on the cross through his death and through his resurrection. It cannot be taken away from me. There is nothing that can stop it. There's nothing that can get in the way. God's promises are true. He is faithful. What God starts, God finishes. And there is nothing that will stand between me and my relationship with him. So I will live by faith and by the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. I will walk in newness of life and I will put what remains of sin in me to death day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, that's why you're here. God brought you here to hear this. You can't help yourself. 
You can't conquer your guilt. You can't conquer your shame. You can't be righteous on your own. You can't fulfill God's law. You can't do it. God did it himself. Jesus came and fulfilled the law. He died to pay for sins. He offers grace, forgiveness, hope, and power to everyone who confesses their sins and comes to him by faith for help. If you'll come to him and do that, he will forgive you and he will free you and he will change you and you will be made new. This final part of the passage still. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me... Nobody delights in the law of God. Remember that from chapters 1, 2, and 3? Unless they've been made new. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Do you have new desires to do what God says? Do you trust God's word and want to understand and obey it? Is there a struggle at the deepest level between the desire to obey and walk with God and what you still find yourself doing sometimes? That just means that you're an honest Christian. It means that you're learning to trust the gospel of grace. God's law tells you everything you're supposed to do and all the ways you fail. And grace tells you everything God has done for you. The law shows you your sin and your condemnation. And grace shows you God's forgiveness. The law shows you how you should live. Grace gives you the power to do it. So here's the good news for all of us. If you are in the fight, if you're in the struggle, it means that God is at work in you. And that means he's not done with you. What God starts, God finishes. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Remember Philippians chapter 1. When we talk about the security of the believer, you hear somebody say the words, once saved, always saved. Here's the wrong way to talk about that. Johnny said a prayer when he's six, once saved, always saved, so it doesn't matter if he lives like a rebel. No. What God starts, though, God finishes. Those who have been truly saved, justified, will be in the process of being saved, sanctified, and eventually will be saved, glorified. If God has begun a good work in you, God is still at work in you. What God starts, God finishes. You will be made perfect. You will be made complete. Not this side of heaven, but you will improve. You'll grow, you'll change, and you'll feel wretched about it because you'll continue to see the difference between where you are now and where you should be. You'll do the things that you hate, that you know you shouldn't do. But the more wretched you feel, the more blessed you'll realize you are. The deeper that you see the sin go, and you'll see it go deeper, and then you'll see that grace is more, and it goes even deeper still. Whatever your sin, you'll see that God's grace is greater, that it's more, that it's deeper. People love to hate this phrase, but it's real and it's true. You are always worse than you think you are. And the Christian life is a constant discovery of just how bad you are. And God's grace is always more. 
Every time you're in that place of discovery of how wretched you are, you look up to find that God was there all along, that he knew he wasn't fooled or surprised. Before he ever saved you, he knew how bad you really were, far better than you do and far better than you ever will. And his love is that deep and his grace is that deep. That's where I think he's headed and where I think he's going. And that's why I think this is about the Christian life, the normal Christian life. And if I'm right about that, the very next section should confirm that. So what's the next verse that we start with next week? There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the sweetest thing you'll ever read in your entire life. It's the bedrock of your faith. It's the freedom to look at your sin, to look at yourself and say, there's nothing good in me. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's nothing good in me. I still do the things, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I don't have to whip myself on the back. I don't have to click my heels together. I don't have to lick my lollipop and pretend that sin doesn't exist anymore because I'm in Christ. Grace isn't a magic wand I wave over my life. It's not an incantation that just sort of makes everything magically go away inside of here. And it's not despairing and lashing myself on the back and saying, woe is me, I'll never be free. It's looking sinful in the face for what it is, feeling it, hating it, feeling wretched about it. And instead of seeing condemnation, seeing grace. I am that bad and I'm free. I'm that bad and I bear none of it. And I can leave it behind. I can put it to death. Look at how deep God's love for you is. Look at how great God's grace is. You're that bad. You are worse. There is nothing good in you. You still fail to do what's right. Even when you do, your motives are mixed. And yet here is Jesus still. There's grace for you. And there's power. You can change. You have changed. You are being changed. So fight even harder. Because walking with God is not something you have to do. It's something you get to do through the work of Jesus. And it's fully secured to you. And he's given you the same spirit that raised him from the dead so that you can walk in newness of life with your father. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take these truths and that you would bring them home to our hearts. That you would help us to see our sin for what it is and to have faith to see it for what it is because of what Jesus has done for us. And I pray that that would give us hope and encouragement and freedom to get back up and to fight the fight of faith, of putting our sin to death, knowing we don't have to work to please you. We are pleasing to you because of what Jesus has done. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.